We have lots of great content in this week's Last Chair podcast with two guests today. Joining me are two individuals who can arguably be called Utah's most outdoor adventure-oriented couple. Uh, Caroline Gleick is known to many as one of Utah's premier big mountain adventure athletes. She moved to Utah as a teen and just started working on her career as a pro skier. And among her many accomplishments is skiing all 92 lines in the shooting gallery, the legendary book from Andrew McLean. No slouch himself, Rob Lee is an accomplished skier, climber, triathlete. And last year, he decided to do what some call the ultimate triathlon, climbing Mount Everest, swimming the English Channel, and then riding his bike across America. And if that is not enough, somewhere in the middle of that, they all got married. So guys, welcome to Last Chair. Great to have you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So we get, get a little skiing in earlier today? We sure did. Yeah. I uh, had a little backcountry lap up um, in Little Cottonwood, up and over into uh, Days and Big Cottonwood. And snow was uh, a little wind affected, a little warm today, but uh, generally, yeah, we have a great time out there. Yeah. But this has been one of those seasons where it's so hard for me to leave on a trip because the skiing has been so good. I just want to stay home and has, ski the backyard. Has it been amazing? It's been yeah. so good. It's I'm just being like, picky now, yeah. right? Wait, saying, oh, the, the, the couple inches we got last night wasn't good enough. <laughs> I know we're really spoiled. The coverage is great for it setting up to be a really good season. You know, you guys have the same view that I do living here in Silver Creek. You look out in the mountains, you can see the whole ridge line and get a sense of what's going on up there. And I imagine that's quite a lure for you. It sure is. Actually, uh, we need to finish this project, but one of our thoughts was to ski the entire ridge line from like Deer Valley all the way across to Murdoch Peak over there. So um, we tried it a couple of years ago when we first moved in here and we had really low snow, but I think uh, on a good snow year like this, it, it would be kind of a fun traverse to do. You know, my adventure is somewhat similar to that, but maybe not quite as adventurous, but sometime this winter, Nathan Rafferty of Ski Utah and I are going to ski Jordan L to Condor and back. So little bit less cool. adventurous but the same principle no that's great that's yeah, awesome I that. yeah i find the view from our living room here in park city to be really distracting because we just have this like 360 panorama and i'll be trying to work and i see it starting to clear up and i'm like oh i should go out Gotta and get, get some out. photos <laughs> it looks like a perfect day it's really hard for me to get work done sometimes well rob we're going to get into a little bit more detail later in the podcast but just kind of set the stage a little bit with this ultimate triathlon and what exactly did you do last summer yeah basically the the goal was basically to um it was really my own self-proclaimed ultimate world triathlon. Uh, and uh, I obviously, as you mentioned earlier, I climbed Everest, then swam the English Channel, um, and then biked across America. The uh, Everest was basically kind of the run of my triathlon. A couple of years ago, I had an uh, ankle injury, and the doctor basically said that I shouldn't be running much. Um, so that anyway, that's I was a triathlete, and I kind of transitioned into a different kind of triathlete in a different way here. Um, and the whole thing was supposed to happen within a year year, but it ended up happening within six months because of when I wanted to do these things. So we really jammed it in there. Has yeah. anyone ever done this before? No. I mean, the, the project kind of came about because no one had ever done Everest and the English Channel within a calendar year. Um, turned When I looked into this whole thing, there were some folks who had done both and they call uh, the English Channel the Everest of swimming. That's how I kind of got this idea. Uh, but no one had ever done it within the same year. I ended up doing it, I think it was 43 days apart, my summit from Everest. And then 43 days later, I uh, swim the English Channel. You know, I imagine that it was uh, maybe not a difficult ask of your then fiance to say, uh, hey, can I do this? 
Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch, actually. I don't really like yeah. it like that because <laughs> I am always the one usually doing these projects. And so I don't really like I think in a relationship, you know, both people should be allowed to shine their brightest. And so we've never really I mean, asked each other for permission. We ask each other for support. But I mean, I, we we have a good understanding. Like he's always really supported and encouraged me on all of my projects and skiing all the lines in the shooting gallery and going on some of the trips and the different things that I do. Um, it's not really like something where I don't know. We don't really have that kind of dynamic. It, it, it took a little bit for her to come around on it, to be honest, though. Right. I didn't love the idea. No. <laughs> Did you want to climb Everest? I mean, I've always wanted to take my ski mountaineering to the Himalayas. And so that's been a long time dream of mine. So Choyu, which is the sixth highest peak in the world, which we climbed and skied in September of 2018. That was something that I've always dreamed of doing. My dream with Everest is to go back with my skis. So to climb it in the springtime when we did, that's not the ideal time for skiing. So it was a little bit of a compromise for me, but at the same time, when certain opportunities in life present themselves and when you have a partner that you're willing to spend 40 days and nights in a tent with, sometimes you just say yes. And it was an easy choice for me. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a bit. Let's go back to your youth. And, you know, I, I know your family and I watched uh, you guys growing up. And I know that uh, your family was a big influence in getting you guys outdoors and really experiencing life here in the West. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we grew up uh, camping in Uintas, and uh, Yellowstone is is like my dad's haven. That's that's where he goes to get away from it all. And um, typically, I uh, try to go up to Yellowstone once a year with uh, with my dad and do a backpacking trip. This year, um, I wasn't well. Actually, the last two years, um, two years ago, I was on Choyu, and then this year, I was on my bike ride. So, uh, unfortunately, I've had to miss out on that. So, I'm looking forward to getting back um, in the backcountry with him as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I when I was 15, I did the Grand Teton with my dad and uh, a friend and and his father. So it, it's definitely ingrained in me from an early age. And we were always uh, camping and being outdoors and basically playing sports or whatever. Yeah. yeah. What What were some of the life values that you picked up from that outdoor experience as a youth? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I, I, I the first thing that comes to mind is um, kind of two things, and that is like. Uh, it was, it was, I think it was always my dad's kind of release from, from work. And, uh, now we're, of course, we can probably even be on our cell phones in the back country, but, uh, I think he, he does his thing here. And then when we get there, he just totally unwinds. And I see that and I see his demeanor and just, um, it's the time for him to really just, uh, be introspective and, um, be with nature and have a lot of patience and just kind of and not hurry. Um, that's, uh, one thing he's really kind of taught me on the trail is like, we're in yellow stone and I tend to want to like get to the next camp you know and he's he's kind of like just cruising along doing his thing and uh, um, so I think there's just a lot of like introspection and being in nature and um, and patience out there yeah Caroline you moved here when you were young and tell us a little bit about how you got into this pathway that's led you to become such a great uh, mountaineer and outdoor adventure I grew up in Minnesota and I would always take trips out west with my family for Christmas and sometimes in the summer. So we would often come to Utah and on the ski trips with my family and then we'd go backpacking in the summer. I just really fell in love with 
was skiing and it just completely captured my imagination from a young age. We'd watch Warren Miller films and I was like, I want to be a pro skier. I just knew from a young age. And so when I moved to Utah when I was 15, I was too old to start ski racing at that time. So I was a little bit dejected about that. But when I was 18 and I graduated from high school, I made it my goal to become a professional skier. So I really focused on that, skiing as much as I could and learning, working with photographers and brands and the resorts and just slowly building it over the course of the last decade and a half. You know, I think one of the things that's always impressed me about you is that not only did you understand what it took to become a great athlete, but you understood the business side and what you needed to do to put your own personal brand out there. Yeah, that's a whole other side of it that's really been interesting for me to learn. And at the end of the day, it's really about the brand that's the it's really about what you can give to a brand it's not necessarily about being the best at your sport i mean there's a lot of skiers that grew up skiing their whole lives who are technically much better skiers than i am but it's really about creating a nice you know creating goods and services that are profitable to a brand and so that could be photography or writing or storytelling or video production there's so many different ways you can do it and i love the creative challenge so when you look at yourself the caroline glake brand what are some of the brand attributes that you have that you try to carry through when you do the photo shoots I would say that one of the values that I just has always been ingrained in me is this environmental ethic and a responsibility towards people and the planet and really to trying to take care of the places that I visit and also to have like the least impact that I can on the land and, you know, to try to improve things if I can. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what ways are you doing that now in your career? Well, there's a lot of different ways that I, um, right now I'm really focused with the upcoming elections in November. I'm trying to really take some of the environmental messaging, talking about the impacts of climate change, but also to really try to mobilize the outdoor community to become more vocal on, you know, like to be able to go outside to recreate is a huge privilege. Like people who go skiing, we're some of the most privileged people in the world. And so with that privilege, I believe comes a big responsibility to advocate for clean air, clean water, and for access to the outdoors. So I'm really trying to get people to understand that responsibility we have and to also commit to vote and just to become more active, engaged citizens. Kind of going back to maybe more of the skiing and the athletic side, what advice do you have to young skiers growing up to who, who want to follow a path as a pro skier and do some of the things that you've been able to do? That is a great question. I mean, there's so much advice that I would love to give people. And I would say like for one of the things is to be focused on the long game and to have a long-term strategy. And that really goes to like, taking care of your body and not getting too injured. I see a lot of young athletes that have a lot of injuries in skiing. And so to really kind of like end when you have a little bit of energy left in the day so that you can ski the next day. Like it's really about like good training is about being able to recover and get up and do it the next day and to really build a bank of training and fitness. And so I just see a lot of kids really trying to push it a little too hard and a lot of injuries and those can be really big setbacks. How much does the fitness factor in? Um, I guess like I didn't really know that much about fitness and training until I started dating Rob because I was a skier. Like I would just go ski and skiers. We don't have like, we never use like fitness trackers or any of that, but for backcountry skiing and for mountaineering, I think it is a huge factor. 
And so um, I think like as much cross training and yoga and Pilates and balance work, I think that stuff plays, it, it can really give you an advantage on the hills, whether you're a recreational skier or whether you're a professional athlete. Rob, you transitioned uh, into a variety of different uh, aerobic sports, but triathlon really became a, a big focus for you. Yeah, I mean, even <clears throat> starting in high school, it was something that kind of called to me. Um, I've always been an endurance athlete. I've, I don't really have a quick twitch muscle in my body, um, but I always I was a swimmer. I mountain biked like literally all summer long, and I was a cross country runner in uh, in high school as well. So it was pretty natural fit. Um, but as I kind of went along. Um, at different times in my life where I, I got more and more competitive in different disciplines. And I did my first Ironman when I was 19. I was uh, at the end of my freshman year in college. Um, I really got into half Ironmans. I think it was in about 2010 or 11. And uh, 2012, I was the half Ironman world champion in my age group. And I was kind of setting myself up to go pro like about a year later. And then I had some injuries, um, kind of to Caroline's point, you really got to take care of your body. I had some injuries that, uh, uh, got me out of the game a little bit and that kind of changed my course, uh, what we can say forever. <laughs> yeah. Where, did, where did it go? Uh, you know, as you got past that phase and kept tracking, how far did you get in the sport and what then caused you to take this different direction? Yeah, like I said, I mean, when I um, was world champion in my age group there in the half Ironman, I was definitely uh, competitive, uh, even almost at the pro level. But my coach at that time um, kind of cautioned me to jump into the pro scene too early because, uh, you know, you can it, it's all exciting to say you're pro. And then if you're the last pro in every race, it's pretty demoralizing. So he wanted me to be competitive as a pro when I when I turned pro. Um, and then uh, basically, I, like I was just running along one day, I didn't trip, I didn't do anything different. I took a step and I go, hmm, that felt a little funny in the knee. And, um, and it basically inhibited me from training on a daily basis and kind of like consistently. And so instead of going to Kona, the uh, Ironman world championship that year, instead I had surgery on my knee. It took just a little bit longer than it probably should have to kind of get me back to a consistent training basis. But during that time, I started taking up other things. I'd always climbed big mountains and done some stuff like that. Um, but I hadn't been much of a backcountry skier, but that's kind of when Caroline and I met. And so I started doing more of that. And then that's how this ultimate world came in is I kind of morphed those two worlds together as far as the triathlon world and the big mountain climbing. And, uh, you know, that, that's where the ultimate world triathlon kind of comes in. Can, can you can you kind of think back, was there a particular moment in time where this idea synthesized or was it just kind of coming together in pieces over a while? Yeah, no, there was literally a moment in time. And that was uh, at this point, it was about four years ago. And I went in to see uh, Dr. Beals at the clinic here for my ankles. I've got really bad ankles. I've broken the end of my fibula off twice. And so I had no ligaments uh, on either side on my right ankle. So um, I'd been kind of dealing with this for a decade or two almost. And, um, it, it basically it, it was fine, except, um, in the last year or two before that doctor's visit, I was getting bone on bone, uh, because I had some bone spurs. So I went in to see him and he said, yeah, you need surgery. Also, you shouldn't be running. And I think probably just as an athlete, I thought to myself, literally I was sitting on the table and he's kind of talking to me and I thought, 
I need a new goal. Like I need an athletic goal to have out in the future. Cause I've gone through rehab a lot. I've been injured a lot throughout my life. Um, so I needed that goal out there to kind of get me through surgery and rehab and everything else. And I immediately thought of the English channel because of my swimming background. Um, but I, at that time I know, knew nothing about the English channel and kind of some of the cruxes of it, particularly the cold water and some things like that. Um, so I, I literally decided on the table that I was going to do the English Channel. And then as I researched it, I found it was the Everest of swimming. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do both as I kind of talked about earlier. But then because of my triathlete background, I said, well, maybe I need to throw in a triathlon to, or a, a bike ride to make this like a my new triathlon. And that's where it was all kind of born. But that, that doctor's table, I can remember it vividly. Yeah. Were the two of you together at that time? We were. So, so what was your first thought when he, he talked to you about this idea? I think I was almost done with the shooting gallery at that point. And so I didn't really have the bandwidth to think about like another big project. I like had to get through my project. So I was just really focused on my project. I didn't like the idea of Everest. Um, you know, I think people, we have a lot of preconceived notions about what Everest is and what it isn't. And so I had l allowed some of that to sort of like influence my thoughts on that. I mean, another big part of my story is that my half-brother was killed in an avalanche when I was 15. And I lost my best friend to an avalanche when I was 28, five years ago. And so I've seen really closely like my loved ones die in the mountains. And when I think of Everest, I think of death. So when you're, when my, my boyfriend at the time was like, I'm gonna go climb Everest, I wasn't thrilled about it at first. However, it's just also for me as a petite woman, um, I never thought like I could see myself there on that mountain in particular. I didn't think I could get the funding. I didn't, I just, it wasn't something that I initially thought of for myself. And once I started to expand my worldview and once we saw Everest from the summit of Choyu, then instantly once I saw it, I knew I wanted to climb it. But it took me some time to warm up to the idea. Did the two of you do uh, show you we did did you yeah, she actually uh dropped to one knee and proposed to me on the summit there <laughs> oh 20, that's how it worked yeah at that 20, was at twenty six thousand nine hundred six feet she uh she proposed to me yeah yep that was a strategic plan that yeah she i mean what am i i'm gonna say no it's gonna be like the most awkward <laughs> walk down ever i asked his mom for permission before okay. so yeah Good. so, so we had, had the parental blessing oh yeah. so you had the whole thing planned out with the climb yeah that's yeah. wonderful it was really fun that's, yeah that's wonderful. Yeah, we'll have to send you a photo to include in the show notes if you would can. I would yeah. love to. So what type of preparation did it take you to, because the two of you did Everest together, uh, what did it take preparation-wise to get ready for that trip? Uh, I mean, for Everest in particular, I mean, there's uh, sort of, you know, almost you could say a lifetime, but let's say years and years of being in the mountains and, and training in the mountains, feeling comfortable with exposure and knowing what weather and snow conditions are like, all these kind of different things. But the immediate lead up to Everest, um, one of the, the things that we actually did was use this hypoxico tent. Um, so that was basically most people when they go to Everest spend 60 to 70 days there. We did what's called a rapid ascent and we were supposed to be there 40 days and ended up being, I think, 44 or 45 um, because of- uh, It was 40. Was it 40? It was, we climbed, we summited after 34 days. Okay, maybe it's just trap. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We but were we were home in forty days. Okay, yeah. but um, 
So uh, this hypoxico tent goes over your bed and it basically simulates a higher elevation. So before we left for Everest, I mean, there's there's all the normal training you can think of for climbing a mountain, particularly of that scale. But we also were, was, were in this tent every night sleeping and we would bump up the elevation in the tent every night. Uh, so that by the time we left, even though we were here in Park City, um, I think at our house is something like 6,500 feet or something like that. Um, when we left, we were sleeping at 17,000 feet every night and I was doing bike rides with a mask and doing bike rides at 19,000 feet. So that that was a huge part of our training to get ready for, for Everest. But I mean, even before, like we had climbed Choyu, which is another 8,000 meter peak. And then Rob had climbed Aconcagua and I'd climbed high altitude peaks in the Andes, in Ecuador and in the Alps. And so I think doing a bunch of other high altitude stuff before you go to Everest is a really good plan. So it's like doing Choyu really gave us a lot of experience at high altitude and it gave us um, a good understanding of how our bodies would behave at those altitudes. You you also did what I thought was a very strategic look or took a really strategic look at your plan. Who would guide you and what route you would take? Yeah, so we did uh, Choyu with Alpenglow Expeditions. Um, they just have a, a great track record as far as safety, but also summits. But the main thing we looked at was safety. Um, and you do Choyu from the uh, Tibetan side, from the north side there. Um, and it's also a very similar kind of like approach into base camp and everything else as Everest from the north side. So one of the things um, on Everest that um, some of your listeners may have seen where it was the photo of uh, the line of people on the Everest <coughs> ridge there. Um, uh, you know, the, our side of the mountain was busy that day as well. We, we ended up summoning the next day and we can get into that. But um, there's like a third of as, as many climbers on the north side as there are on the south side. So this was all on purpose because we knew that that could potentially be an issue and we wanted to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that Everest is right on the border between Nepal and Tibet and that there are multiple routes that you can take to climb the mountain. Most people go up the standard route on either the north or the south side. We climb from the north from Tibet and it's, yeah, like Rob said, much less crowded. As as you were up there and you were on your way in those days leading up to uh, summiting, uh, was it nervousness, tension, stress? What was the atmosphere like for you? I mean, we were exhausted because just being at those altitudes, you're so tired all the time. I was, we were both nervous and I was especially anxious because reading about Everest history, you just know on a year with, with a short weather window like we had that it causes everyone to go at once. And those are the years where you see a lot of problems and fatalities and frostbite. And, you know, you don't want to come home without all your fingers and toes and your nose. And so, just reading, like I try to actually, I didn't read a lot of Everest. I read like some history and literature, but I didn't, I didn't really consume too much media before the trip about Everest because it's one of those things where it can be what you make it and the experience, you shape your own experience. You can always turn around mm -hmm. at any point. And so I just wanted to go in without too much expectation and to see it, you know, I wanted to see what it really was all about and have it my own experience. Yeah, I, I would kind of echo that. And um, to answer your question, basically all of those emotions and more, maybe that's what's really exciting about Everest is that there's these extreme highs, lows, anxiousness, nervousness, all these things happening all within the context of like, um, you know, this athletic endeavor. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a mental game as well, just kind of, um, you know, not worrying about uh, kind of what could happen, even though you want to like, 
keep that in mind and make sure that you avoid some of the mistakes of the past. But um, basically, yeah, it's just one foot in front of the other. And then you're just trying to um, kind of rein in the emotions because it is an emotional place to be 100%. Everything about it is emotional. It feels like you have the flu and it feels like you have the worst cold of your life. And then you have to get out and climb up a huge mountain. And so just sort of being okay with that discomfort and understanding that once your body gets moving, it'll probably be okay. But it was really hard. Like anyone who says Everest, I had heard all these things, like you pay your way up, it's a walk up, it's easy. People who say that have not been there because I can tell you I've climbed a lot of mountains, I've done a lot of hard things, and it was one of the hardest things I've done in my life. So when you summit, what did that feel like? Basically, you're on the summit and you're like, Okay, let's get some photos and get out of here. I mean, honestly, it's uh, it's slightly anticlimactic because, um, particularly on our day, but really, I think this would be any day. We we knew we went the day after uh, most people went, um, and other people didn't go on our day because a storm was coming in, and so we knew we had to get up the mountain and off the mountain before this storm came in. Um, and uh, so we we got to the summit. We definitely tried to enjoy it and get some photos and, and, uh, you know, did our thing there, but really it's all about getting back down and then you can, you can enjoy it when you, when you get back down and it's more about the retrospective, like, you know, a month later or a year later being like going back to those videos and those photos and kind of like reliving the moments. But when you're on the summit, you know, you're only halfway and you're still in harm's way and most deaths and injuries occur on the on the way down so you know you've got uh, some work to do i mean it's like a fantastic position and the climbing to get to the summit was just amazing and it's just magnificent and it's like all your dreams are coming true at that moment but at the same time you have this sense of impending doom with this storm that's supposed to be rolling in and so it's a crazy mix of emotions and then when you combine that with the altitude you're almost at thirty thousand feet so you're literally in the jet stream and the air is so thin you take your oxygen mask off for a few minutes and you feel very faint and so it's just you know making sure you're not pushing it to the point of no return so you're just keeping a close eye and trying to stay calm and preserve energy for the way down are there times now where in a moment of peace that you take your phone out and you look back at the photos and just kind of think back to that experience? 100%. Literally, it just happened the other day and we were looking for a photo and I just came across uh, a video of us in the tent at Camp One. <laughs> and it's a video, but it's almost completely black. There's a headlamp in there and we're in the tent. We're at 23,000 feet. And I'm videoing her because she's a little bit upset with me. Um, we had decided to save some weight that we were going to share a toothbrush for our summit push. So this is like a five-day thing. And she had asked me a bunch of times at uh, Advanced Base Camp to make sure I had the toothbrush. And I did. But of course, that morning before we left, I used the toothbrush and then I left it. So we realized this at Camp One and we knew that that meant basically five days on the mountain with no to toothbrush for either one of us. And she wasn't too happy with me, but we got we got through it just fine and it was all right. <laughs> but you can just hear this raw, vulnerable emotion and this incredible fatigue. Like the effect, like the physical effect of being at those altitudes, it's just, it takes this crazy toll on your body. And you can hear it in our voices. Like you can hear the exhaustion and the months of fatigue from doing the high altitude training and also from my injury, my 
ACL injury that happened seven weeks before we left. I was really, really beat down <laughs> at that moment. But we handled it really well. You know, it's like these challenges come in and you just learn to roll with it. And it's given me this really good resiliency that I've taken to other areas in life where I feel like I'm capable of so much more now because I don't freak out in the same way like I used to. You just, you know, you, it's just a wave and you just let it yeah. ride. Makes everything else look easy, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. It's so much easier now handling all the different things with life that come up. Well, the two of you did an amazing job at telling your story. And those of us back here in Utah who followed you, first of all, I was amazed that you could actually get social media done <laughs> there yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but you really did a good job at telling the story back here. I mean, we're all on edge, you know, we don't know what's happening, but we're following this every day. And how, how do you, uh, how are you able to keep up that social media push over there? I'm just going to say, well, first of all, it's kind of wild on the north side where we were um, at base camp at 17,000 feet. We had LTE like half the time. It was kind of rolling in and out and didn't always work. Um, and then we had some satellite uh, communications above that. So we, we could do a little bit of communications, but um, a, a huge props on this. This is Caroline's thing. It's uh, storytelling and she is really good at it. Um, and she's taught me a lot about it, but uh, it's fun to like take people along for the ride. So I'm going to let her answer the rest of it. I mean, we tried to update when we could, but it's also maintaining that balance between keeping people updated, especially friends and family, and then also being able to enjoy the experience and not having too much outside noise. Because for me, when I when I had my fall and tore my ACL seven weeks before, I was when you're in a in the limelight and when you have a lot of followers on social media, you get a lot of people's opinions. And if you're not careful, it can be easy to let those voices get into your head. So it was like maintaining that balance between preserving a bit of the experience that we needed to have for ourselves and then bringing in and sharing what we could with the world. But on summit day, I was pretty conscientious about not sending out our tracker to the whole world because I just sent it to my core group of family and then I figured they could send it to friends. But I didn't want that weight of having my tracker broadcast and having my location sent in real time just because if something were to happen, I didn't want to put the whole world or through that trauma and I didn't yeah. want any extra burden on me of like, all these people are watching, I have to summit. Like I just wanted to make decisions in more of a pure way. Well, it's smart thinking, but uh, I know yeah. we all appreciated seeing those images and kind yeah. of living vicariously yeah, through you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun to be able to share our adventures and to bring people to these places that we get to see. Like, we feel so lucky to be able to experience, like, some of those glaciers and yeah. to see Tibet, like – that just getting to um, just getting to Lhasa and seeing the Potala Palace where the Dalai Lama lived, like to me, that was a lifetime dream come true. And so we're really grateful for that and fortunate to be able to um, share that stuff with our fans and followers. So less than two months later, you're in the English Channel, Caroline, you're in the boat, and you're trying to do something that really has never been done before in that short a time span. Yeah. Uh, and I, I went into it with not much confidence, to be honest. Um, typically with these kind of things, I, I, you know, I thought the English channel was in my wheelhouse. Um, but because of the timing of it all, um, I, I literally got home from Everest and <clears throat> I'd lost 20 pounds on Everest. And I knew the biggest crux of me swimming uh, the channel was the cold. You can't wear a wetsuit and there's a lot of other rules. So I literally spent the first like three weeks when I got home just putting a ton of weight on. And I ended up putting 30 pounds on in about 30 days. Um, and the way you do that is like, A, you obviously take in as many calories as possible, but also you, you can't really exercise. So I was not really swimming um, and doing kind of the 
the lead up to the English channel that I wanted just so I could get this weight on. So when I got on the boat, I, you know, ready to, to head out to the beach where you start. Um, I was, I, I would say, I was like, this is it. I'm going to give it a go and give it my best try, but I wasn't super confident. Um, but when I, when I dove in the water, um, and felt the temperature and just kind of like started swimming, um, I actually, I felt great. And, uh, in the first couple of hours, I thought I'm swimming the English channel. This is pretty cool. But then I was like, oh man, I, I still have like 10 hours to go. So I better not like get too cocky here. And uh, I had my ups and downs. It was definitely a roller coaster of a swim with my emotions uh, as well. It's kind of, kind of the same thing as Everest. Um, but I uh, was able to get through it and, and finish it off. Well, I want to talk more about the swim, but I want to go back to your training yep. program. And uh, the gaining weight thing was not in your original plan. It's something you kind of determined along the way, right? A little bit. I mean, I knew that I needed to have some extra weight on. And so before Everest, I actually put on probably 15, 20 pounds, but then I lost that and then I had to gain it all back. Um, but uh, I actually met uh, on Everest right after we summited, I met one of the eight or nine people who had done Everest and the English Channel. He was there. It was kind of this crazy moment. And he like literally looked at me and, and said, you need to put some weight on. Like, you know how to swim. I'm sure you can swim a long way. And I kind of, I kind of agreed that the swimming was in my wheelhouse. I, I knew how to swim, but the, the crux was the cold. So I got home. I, I was drinking um, like two quarts of heavy cream a week. I was just breaking every diet rule as far as, um, you know, like literally eating pizza in bed, any carbs that I could, I would eat whenever I wasn't hungry instead of like, I, I would eat just as long as I wasn't full, I would eat. That's what I meant to say. Um, so I was just doing everything I could to put the, the weight on. It's a nice training program, huh? It sounds like it, but honestly, you get it's really not. sick of eating and, and these really heavy foods. And I kind of felt a little bit gross, to be honest. Like it, 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 it kind of taught me that, uh, yeah, it, it sounds all great. But once you start uh, going down that road, then you just kind of feel like lethargic because I was just putting a ton of calories and fat in my body. And so I got really sick of eating, which is, uh, I know, poor me. But uh, at the same time, like it's not something I really enjoyed. And I, I kind of want to maybe do some more English or uh, channel swims in the future. And um, that like that crosses my mind more than the training for the swim. Yeah. Like, gosh, I would have to put that weight on again. I don't know if I want to do that. So, yeah. Well, back to the swim itself, Caroline, you're in the boat and you're monitoring all of this. I mean, what's going through your mind as he's he's swimming the English Channel? I mean, so I have never crewed. I'd never crewed anyone. And crewing itself is like a full-time job. I was uh, six weeks out of ACL reconstruction surgery. And so I was a little bit worried about like my balance and proprioception on the boat. And uh, I talked, we had one other crew person, which is a really small crew for such a long crossing. And so on the boat between filming, doing social media updates and feeding Rob, it was like a full-time job. <laughs> like there wasn't a spare moment to like relax or take a nap. And I talked to some folks and I, or I had one of the prescription motion sickness patches because it's very common for people, the crew, that when you're on the ocean going two miles per hour for 12 hours that a lot of them will get completely incapacitated by motion sickness. And so I was like, I know I have to like hold it together not get sick and be able to feed and take care of Rob. So it was a lot of work. Yeah. It was, it was a lot more beautiful than I thought because they say it's like the busiest shipping lane in the world. And so I was expecting to see like a lot of boat traffic, but in the middle of in, as the sun was going down, you know, it's like right around the summer solstice when we were there. So the day was really long and the sunset lasted forever and the water was really calm. It was, it was beautiful. 
Rob, as you swam towards the uh, French coast, at what point did you get a sense, I'm going to do this? Um, you know, I, I think once I got kind of somewhere around halfway through, maybe six hours, I thought there was a pretty good chance um, because I was I, I, honestly like, this is the tricks you play with your mind. I was kind of thinking to myself, like, if I don't do this, I'm going to have to come back and do it. And then I'm going to have to swim that six hours again. So like, I might as well just keep swimming and make it. Um, that was kind of the thought process. Um, but at the same time, um, I started at about 4.30 PM. Um, so I swam a couple hours in the daylight and then I swam through the night. And so when I was uh, approaching the uh, French coast there, I, I saw lights and I, I didn't know exactly if those were boats or if that was the shoreline or whatever else. And I'd been told that it, basically you're trying to hit this one cape and there's a strong current that kind of comes through there and sometimes you get pushed kind of back out to sea. So I'd been told to um, that you really have to swim hard at the end and that if you miss it, you got a couple hours more swimming. So I thought, gosh, I, I might have a couple more hours to go here and I was preparing for that. And then uh, this kind of simplifying it, but all of a sudden my hand hits sand and I'm like, I'm there. It was, it was pretty wild. I didn't really realize it. I thought I might be close, but I didn't really know how close because it was dark out. And then lo and behold, I hit sand and then I stood up and I was like, wow, this, this is over. And I, I accomplished it. It was a pretty special feeling. Caroline, you were in the boat at that point. Uh, did you uh, celebrate in the boat or did you jump into the water? I did not jump into the water. I stayed in the boat. Um, I was trying to document the finish as best I could. I wasn't equipped to go into the water. I was, uh, again, just six weeks out of knee surgery. And so I didn't, I don't think swimming would have been a good thing for me at that time. And he had Anna, the other crew person with me. Um, so she went in and so yeah, she, she did get in. Yeah. So I, I, I thought it was close, but I didn't know how close. And then, like I said, next thing I know, I was standing yeah. there and uh, the, the sun was almost just about to start coming up. So, well, and then after that, one leg left in the Ultimate World Triathlon. Uh, uh, I know when we talked before you went on the bike ride, it was something that you really wanted to enjoy. It's basically spending a month riding across America. Yeah, that was the uh, the goal to enjoy it, and um, I, I would definitely say that I enjoyed it. But uh, I, I kind of had this sneaking suspicion. I think when I told you um, that it was going to be harder than I expected, and it was uh, it was even harder than I could have expected. Um, again, because I didn't really have the training going into it like you would normally. If you were riding across the country, you would spend months and months riding um, to get ready for it. And I definitely rode a bunch um, over the winter, getting ready for Everest and that kind of thing. But I think I'd rode my bike maybe less than half a dozen times before I started this ride uh, in like the six months lead up. And so when I uh, set off, I thought oh, I'm going to kind of uh, ride myself into shape, but I, I, I should have known this as an athlete my entire life, but I forgot one key aspect of like kind of riding yourself into shape or getting into shape. And that is recovery. And I didn't really have any time to recover. So if I would have been able to take a couple of days off, um, I, I think that could have happened, but I, I just kind of struggled the whole way across the country. Um, I mean, it, it, I had my better days and I had my hard days, but um, it was it was a long time to be on a bike. Let's put it that way. And I, I got to see America in a pretty special way. Um, but it was, it def I, I think, is probably the hardest um, aspect of this triathlon. As you went through some of the small towns of America, did you have any interaction with the folks and encouraging words as you spend a night in a small place you'd never been before? Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, we'd be having lunch and. Somebody would be asking where, where I started and, you know, let's say I was in, uh, 
North Dakota. And I, I would say I started in Washington like two weeks ago and they go, oh my gosh. So I had a lot of really encouraging words that way. Uh, Caroline was really nice where we would, we stayed mostly uh, like motels and some hotels and stuff like that. And um, she would typically get there before me. And a lot of times she would tell them that, that I was riding across the country and I'd be in in like an hour or something like that. And so I'd come in and they'd uh, always have words of encouragement, that kind of thing. So it was, it was cool. You started in the Northwest and you went up to the Northeast. Where was it that you hit your goal and maybe put your foot into the Atlantic Ocean? Uh, so yeah, I finally, uh, finished it in Nantucket. Uh, I mean, I guess technically when I got to New York, I was kind of on the Atlantic ocean and you're on the Hudson there. Uh, then I rode up the coast, um, and then to Hyannisport and took the ferry across to Nantucket and then rode to the east, uh, side of Nantucket. And, uh, definitely, uh, it was a pretty special moment to ride up and, and jump in the water and, uh, raise my bike above my head. Cool. Yeah. Now you did this, not just for a personal accomplishment and there's an amazing one at that, but you also did it for a cause. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I wanted to, um, uh, keep a conversation going about gender equality and, um, this kind of came about, I think kind of years in the, in the working, but one of the things that I saw was, um, with with Caroline and when I started backcountry skiing and she was literally a professional backcountry or ski mountaineer, um, people would kind of approach me in the mountains and they would look for advice from me. Hey, what's the snowpack doing or where are you guys heading? And they would think that I was maybe even guiding her um, and it was totally the other way around. And that, that was just uh, one little example of, uh, you know, years of where I see we walk into you know, a ski shop and ask about skiing some mountain and they'll maybe talk to me and, and then she's, she comes up and they're like, Oh, you're planning on climbing this. They don't really give her the, the same respect. And so, um, we, we realized that, um, kind of from the Everest aspect that about 10% of the people who summit are women. And that's, kind of a similar number to the um, percentage of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies that are uh, women. And so we use this analogy of basically putting women on top, um, whether it's in the mountains, on mountains, or in the boardroom and in, in these Fortune 500 companies. So we wanted to have that conversation. Yeah. Caroline, what were your thoughts uh, uh, on on that process and, you know, Rob using this as a cause to celebrate? or to- I think it's great because I get really tired of talking about gender equality and always being asked to speak for women um, in the ski industry, especially, you know, like brands, they always want to, me to speak on behalf of women, but they never ask a man to speak on behalf of all men. And so I get really tired of advocating for equality, whether it's for my paycheck or for the product design or for the technical aspects of the gear that I'm using. And I'm really tired of watered down equipment and experiences for women. So I'm really grateful that Rob was willing to take that step and to be brave to put himself out there because it's just, it, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes with advocating for gender equality. And I get really tired. So it was a huge lift to have him help pick up the weight. And I, I imagine this is something that you, both of you are very cause oriented uh, on this gender equality cause and also climate, that these are things that you'll continue to advocate for. Yeah, we started a foundation called the Big Mountain Dreams Foundation, and um, one of our goals is to create a scholarship fund for women in mountaineering and triathlon, and then um, we're doing a whole bunch of other things. I'm really interested in the intersectionality between climate change and gender equality, because how we treat people is how we treat the planet. So there's a lot of really cool overlap between these two causes, and so I'm really interested in furthering both of them. Cool. What's in your futures? Skiing projects, other projects? 
All of the above. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, uh, yeah, we're starting to look at uh, projects in the future. I mean, this is, you know, it's funny you, you say, oh, like what's next after Everest, but I, I don't really feel any different after Everest. It was, uh, it was, you know, the summit is great, but it's all about that experience of being on the mountain with people and, um, forming those relationships and, uh, you know, the struggle to, to succeed and all those kind of things. So there's definitely more mountains, uh, in our future. Um, I think, you know, we definitely want to go to the Alps and maybe even like Pakistan or something like that. Uh, actually one of the biggest things we want to do is go to Antarctica and go skiing down there. So we're looking at, uh, potentially doing that. I definitely want to do some more channel swims. So I'm starting to learn about that world and learn about other places that I could go to do that. So, yeah. Cool. Caroline, anything on your agenda? Yeah. I mean, I have a jam-packed winter schedule and then I have some cool spring projects that I'm really excited about. And then hopefully we can get the funding and everything ready to go to climb and ski Vincent Massif, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. Cool. So that would be our goal for the end of 2020 or early 2021. Well, it's been great to hear your stories. Uh, that was an amazing summer for us to uh, follow you. So congratulations to both of you and uh, on your accomplishments and on your marriage last year. Appreciate that. Yeah, it was a fun year. We're going to close it out with some fun stuff, a little lightning round action. So we've got a few questions for you and you can both chime in on this. Uh, first one, pretty simple. Where did each of you learn to ski originally? Go ahead. A combination of Welch Village and Park City. Which I actually rode my bike next to just randomly. I didn't know Welsh Village, Welsh Village yeah. in Minnesota, which was kind of cool. Uh, I learned how to ski at Park City. Okay. Yep. Favorite ski line or run in Utah? Ooh. I'm going to say Mount Superior. That's just the first one that comes to mind. For some reason, the hypodermic needle is calling me. <laughs> I don't know, though. I haven't had the best conditions, so probably superior as well. You yeah. know, I was at Alta last week and just looking out there at the lines coming off superior. It's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, favorite summiting experience? Well, it's hard not I'm to gonna say I'm going to get Everest. in trouble if I don't <laughs> say show you where I got proposed to. Oh, no. Oh, well, yeah, that was pretty special. Wedding on the top of Hidden Peak. Yeah, there's that too. That. Yeah, Hidden Peak, our wedding this uh, summer. So, okay. man, it's, that's, that's tough. But we've had some good ones in the last year. That's for sure. Yeah, or maybe our first time we skied Superior together. Yeah, that was we really had, special. This is a hard question. It's okay. You can <laughs> yeah. have multiple well, answers. Well, I have okay. to ask you, though, for the wedding on Hidden Peak, did you uh, did you climb or take the tram? We took the tram. You took the tram. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I did not. I wanted just to have a basic wedding. I didn't want to have to climb a mountain on my wedding day. Yeah. So uh, most fearful you've ever been outdoors? I'm just going to go with the instinct. The first thing that comes to mind was Chiochetti's ribbon, which is mm. uh, the ribbon that goes across Devil's Castle that if you're an Alta skier, you see. And that was uh, Caroline's last line that she had to ski for the shooting gallery. I was going to do it and then I wasn't going to do it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go with you. And we were up there and that was that was some exposure. That was like... That was pretty full on ski mountain hearing. And when I say that, there wasn't much skiing involved, honestly, but it was, uh, it was, it was pretty uh, sketchy up there. Cool. I would say when I tore my ACL, that was probably one of the most scared I've ever been. I mean, just, yeah, that was not my, <laughs> that was not a good day. So, so the two of you have literally been bred to be in these gnarly places and having these wild adventures. What's the most enjoyable time for you here at home? 
I like skiing groomers at Deer Valley. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Making uh, dinner at home. I, 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 I was going to say the hot tub looking at this this view of the Wasatch back, you know. I mean, what's the best part about the hot tub is after you go ski, right? So uh, whether that's in the backcountry or we go like rip groomers at Deer Valley and then jump in the hot tub, that's a pretty, pretty special day. I've cool. been really excited about groomer skiing this year. <laughs> Nothing wrong with groomer skiing. No. The fresh Roy is so fun. Okay, last question. Groomers, powder, glades, or moguls? I'm going to say powder or corn. Corn's corn good. is yeah. actually my favorite. I, I was waiting for you to say corn because we like uh, the spring skiing when it get the stable conditions for the ski mountaineering. So I would say that, you know, it's hard to say powder over groomers, but I definitely like my groomers powder over that. But uh, corn skiing can be pretty good too. Yeah. Good. Robin Caroline, thank you for joining us here on Last Chair. It's been great to talk about this adventure and get to know you a little better. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. Rob Lee and Caroline Glake, Utah's outdoor adventure couple. Get uh, to know them a little bit, take some time, look at their causes. Uh, they are making a difference. It's not just about the adventure, it is about making a difference in the world today. If you're enjoying Last Chair from Ski Utah, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please share with a friend. Hope you're enjoying these stories of the people who make the Ski Utah experience so magical. I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Ski Utah's Last Chair. See you on the slopes.